Let's get into this word, man. I'm so excited about this tonight. Uh, we're going to finish out uh, 1 Peter this evening, one way or the other. And uh, I am thinking that we're just going to go on to 2 Peter. Um, my purpose behind doing 1 Peter originally uh, is obvious. I, I titled the whole series, This is a Test, because of all the stuff we're going through. And 1 Peter is really all about suffering. You know, we think we're going through it. Like I said, as I've uh, you know mentioned to you guys before, but different of you have come at different times, and some of you haven't been here during this particular study, or haven't been very many times during this study. But um, we're not going through anything compared to these people, right? You know, they're we're dealing with issues right now because of ostensibly the coronavirus. Well, even with all of this, even as bad as it seems. It's nothing like these folks who were being severely persecuted, not just told they can't meet, you know, together in a church setting, but uh, being persecuted severely in various other ways. And uh, so I think we can understand based on what we're going through, but throughout the entire time in 1 Peter, we've seen that suffering can be productive. Now, that just seems contrary, doesn't it? How can suffering be productive? Suffering is destructive. But suffering can be productive if we put our trust in the Lord and we see that he's working through it, right? And above all, I think the message is that suffering makes us more Christ-like. And uh, Jesus was the suffering servant. And um, when we suffer, uh, at least when we suffer for right things, for righteousness, then we are able to identify with Jesus and understand what that suffering is all about. I'm going to back up a couple of verses from where we're going to be tonight. This is the first verse we're going to be in this evening, verse 8 of chapter 5. But I'm going to back up a little bit so we get our context here. Um, he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And then there's some final greetings, and I'll read those at the, at the end. So let's back up a little bit. Um, even though we covered verse, verses 6 and 7 last week, I think it's important for us to understand that before you start getting with your spiritual warfare and getting chest to chest, so to speak, with the devil, you need to humble yourself before God. You and I are nothing when it concerns spiritual warfare. We're not terribly spiritual people. In fact, we're not spiritual at all in the natural. We're natural, right? But um, when we humble ourselves before God, we find that he is our ally. And um, I don't know, imagine, imagine yourself facing uh, a fearsome enemy of some kind, right? Imagine you're a kid. I've got all these kids in my karate club, right? And some of them, you know, they, they can be real fierce when they're doing their katas, you know. I got little Asher, Asher Wilson. He can just be so fierce when he's doing his kata, right? And he's a tough little kid. I'm telling you, I need to get him in a tournament because I think he could win. But he's six. What happens if you're six and you're training and you're fierce and you're tough, right? And you're, you're bold. Well, what happens when you face somebody that's bigger than you and stronger than you, more powerful than you, meaner than you? What do you do? Well, you know, you can try to stand up to a bully like that. But what's great is Asher's got an amazing dad who's 10 times bigger than him, right? And so, you know, you can just imagine Asher getting into a situation where, you know, let's, let's say there's some nefarious adult that, uh, you know, faces Asher down. Heaven forbid that that would ever happen. And Craig is just standing behind him, staring him in the eye. That adult's not going to do anything to Asher, is he? 
because Craig is big and he's well-trained and he's standing behind his son. So I'm using people that you know so that you'll understand you need to humble yourself before the, the Lord. You want to be in his shadow. You want him to be behind you at all times, wherever you're going, whatever you're facing, right? So that's why it's important before we get into this verse tonight about uh, uh, standing against the devil, uh, actually it says it in, yeah, verse 9, verse 8, uh, talks about being serious and being watchful, but that you understand we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand first and foremost, because he's going to be the one that's fighting in us and fighting through us and fighting for us. You need to get that. It's very, very important. And the other thing is, it very clearly says, and this is a quote, this is an Old Testament quote, um, uh, God resists the proud. We don't need God as the one resisting us, right? Sometimes people think that their plans are not working out because God's not blessing them. Well, it may be that God's not blessing you because you haven't asked him. That, that's what James said. He said, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, this is James again, he says, you ask and, and do not receive. So you, you don't have because you don't ask. But if you ask and you don't receive, it's because you're selfish. You want to spend it on your pleasures. You're not seeking to glorify God. You're not seeking to honor him. You just want God to be your concierge, as I've used as an illustration before, you know, where God just comes running to your aid and just gives you whatever you want. That's not the way it works. I say Jesus is Lord, and that means I respond to him. He's not responding to me. Lord, come here. I need you to do this for me and do that for me and do the other. And that's, you know, a lot of people would want to have a relationship with, with God just to get his power on their side, right? They want his favor. They want his blessings. They just don't want to do what he says. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. That's how you prove your love. You don't prove your love. We should sing songs by all means, right? We should have feelings for the Lord. But that's not how you prove your love. You prove your love by obeying the Lord, right? And as the verse that I quoted on Sunday from uh, John chapter 8 says, it's not just the truth will set you free. Man, you can find out the truth about things that contradict your beliefs and can put you in bondage, right? It's not the truth sets you free. That's, that's, that's a partial statement. And it's because it's taken out of context, it can be untrue, right? Jesus said, if you are really my disciples, then you'll hold to my teaching, and then you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. Oh, that's a lot different. You're holding to his teaching. You're not just doing what you want to do. See, that's what people want. They just want to live their lives the way they choose, and they want God to bless them. That's not the way it works. You live your life for the will of God, and then you will find that blessings flow. And you will find that those blessings are different than other people have understood, perhaps, or defined them. Blessings are not just having a big wad of cash in your pocket. In fact, a lot of people get themselves in trouble when they have a big wad of cash in their pocket, right? Addicts get themselves in trouble. When they have a big wad of cash in their pocket, they immediately go out and spend it on their addiction and, you know, can plow themselves under with it, whatever. Um, you know, people think, well, if I just had, uh, you know, these material things. And people end up serving and worshiping material things. That's not necessarily a blessing either. In fact, it can be a curse. But doing the will of God and following him and understanding who you are in Christ, that's a blessing. That's the real thing. And that's why uh, we want to, first of all, humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time, notice at the proper time, not in my timing, but his timing, then he will bless me. He will bless you. In fact, it says he will exalt you. And if you're worried, what does it say? And I spent a lot of time on this last week, so I won't revisit it for very long. Casting all your anxieties on him, that's the translation in ESV, because he cares for you. That's your worries, your concerns, right? You're worried about that surgery. This scripture's for you. Casting all of your worries upon him because he cares for you. This is the God who 
is present when a bird falls from the sky. This is a God who knows the number of hairs on your head. That's how down in the details God is. And so with that in mind, then I can know that if this is a good and loving God, as we believe he is, then I'm going to be able to entrust my soul to him, a faithful creator, in doing what is right when I'm suffering, right? Well, now let's, uh, let's bounce down to verse 8. It starts out, be sober-minded, be watchful. You know what that means? It means get serious. There are some people that just don't want to get serious. They just joke around all the time. They're not looking at reality. They're just making up their own reality, so to speak. Um, some folks just drift through life without a plan. They're aimless. Here's the reality. If you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. So you have to be serious. You have to pay attention. You have to wake up and look around you because this is a dark and dangerous world. And you need to give God thanks when he is protecting you. So like I said, we got two what look like bullet holes in our windows upstairs. Now, I haven't found any slugs in there, so I'm guessing that they must have been some sort of a pellet gun or something. But it's, I mean, they're pretty good-sized holes, and it went through two panes of glass. So, you know, the Lord's watching over me. I'm up there all the time. Last thing I need is, you know, somebody who decides they don't like churches taking pot shots at the church. But, you know, God is good. So I took a while to call the police. I finally called the non-emergency number. And that is probably in large part why you see those cameras sitting right across the street right there that the police department has put there. And they're looking all around this area. So if somebody's playing games, that right there is recording every move. Praise God. Because I told them, I said, I don't, I don't, I had a camera on this side of the building. Um, I've got a camera. I got two cameras out here in the front that show everything coming out these windows. I mean, I've got everything out the front. I've got everything out the side. I can see any shenanigans that are going on across the street at the bar over there. You know, I can see the bench out here, my sign, all this other stuff I can see. But if somebody was standing further down the sidewalk, I've got to put that camera back up. But, you know, praise God. The, the Lord, what I'm trying to say is the Lord will take care of you too. But you need to trust him, put yourself under his care, and you need to be serious. So I teach people all the time. I teach self-defense. Um, it's primarily kids. I got more adults that have been coming here lately. But um, I teach people that you need to have 360-degree awareness. See, a lot of people walk down the street and they just have tunnel vision. They're just right, just like this. A lot of people, they're just on their phone, right? So it's not just tunnel vision like this. It's that they're on their phone and they're walking around like this. So they don't even have good tunnel vision, right? They've just got this little pinpoint right here. And they don't have that 360-degree awareness. But I need to have 360-degree awareness. I need to be aware of what's going on behind me and around me all the time. I don't need to be surprised. Now, I'm going to tell you something uh, that I think is a benefit from coronavirus. And that is the six-foot social distancing. Now, you may not like that, but you don't have to be six feet from people that, you know, are in your family or whatever. Now, it's not a law. But honestly, it's just a good idea. I've told people for years, when you don't know people, right, then you want a minimum of four feet distance between you and them, okay? And there's a natural uh, sense that you have, and, and I could, you know, get you up here and, sh and show you an example, but four feet is essentially, I can't reach you with my hand if you're beyond four feet from me. I think six feet's even better, okay? Because there are people out there that want to take advantage of other people. Now, there are plenty of good people out there too, so don't get me wrong. But I should have the privilege of determining whether I want to trust people or not. Amen? I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be worried, but I need to have the ability now. Of, of course, in the COVID era, the purpose for six-foot social distancing is, you know, that's about how far your spit travels, apparently. And so, you know, or at least it goes out that far and then starts hitting the ground, essentially. 
Um, but you need to have 360 degree awareness. And honestly, uh, you know, you don't have to be um, hostile about it or anything like that. But it's just wise to keep that sort of distance around you anyway. Eventually, COVID's going to fall off, guys. It can't go on forever, right? It's a virus. It's got to infect upwards of between 30 and 50% of the population, or that same percentage has to be inoculated with some sort of a, uh, a, uh, a you know, antiviral. Um, and then what happens is it just starts contracting because it doesn't infect so many people because these people out here serve as a wall. They've already, so what I'm trying to say is eventually it's going to back down. But it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to kind of pay attention to that six-foot social distancing idea all the time, right? I mean, honestly, I go to the movies all the time. I finally just re-upped my uh, subscription. I have this thing called uh, uh, Stubbs A-List at AMC. You pay like, I can't remember what I'm paying, like 20 bucks a month or something like that, and I can see three movies a week if I want to. And uh, so right now, they have the theaters crunched down to where it's 40% of the theater, but I don't like sitting right next to somebody, and it's not because I'm not friendly. (laughs) I just, you don't know what people are doing, and I don't like sitting right next to somebody that I don't know. Now, I'm happy to talk to people and get to know people, but that's a trust process, right? And I can talk to you standing six feet away from me, I promise. And we can smile at each other, and we can wave, and we can do an air five or whatever we want to do, right? And we may get back to the handshaking and all that stuff, but I'll be honest with you on that. And this may sound so unpreacherly. I've never been a big fan of handshakes anyway, all right? Now, I'm not like an extreme germaphobe like everybody's become now, but really, I don't know where that hand has been, you know? So I'm just not a big, you know, I just, that's why when I, when I started seeing, started with teenagers, in my experience, uh, when I started seeing the fist bump, I was like, dude, I'm a fan. Fist bump. Don't touch my hand. Fist bump. I like that. That's good, you know? So, all right, I'm just using that as an illustration. Um, this is part of what it means to be sober-minded and to be watchful. And certainly we need to be watchful of the shenanigans of other humans, right? And some of those humans are, are diabolically inspired, let's just say it that way. But in this text that we're looking at here, he's saying, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, as soon as as soon as you hear the word devil, people have all sorts of interesting images that come into their minds, right? Largely cartoonish or from movies. But the reality is the word devil means slanderer. That's what the word means, slanderer. So this, I find it interesting that we oftentimes find politicians slandering each other and slandering one another. Some of them would claim to be Christians, others would not, but it's definitely not a Christian position to take. Whether you're slandering them to their face or behind their back, it's not the right way to go. And there are notable politicians who do this all the time. And I'm sorry, it's just wrong. And if they're going to profess Christ, then they need to stop doing that. And it's for political gain, right? Calling, you know, various people by, uh, by nicknames. And they can be funny nicknames. But, you know, sometimes you're trying to be cute and funny, but it's harmful to, to people, right? The devil's a slanderer. We need to be sober-minded and watchful because this adversary, what does adversary mean? Well, that's what one of the devil's other names means, Satan. Satan means adversary. It means opponent. Now, he is first and foremost God's adversary and God's opponent. But because of that, he becomes your adversary when you choose to take up with the Lord. When you choose to follow Jesus, then the devil becomes... If the devil doesn't care about you, if you're just out there living your own life, I mean, you know... The reality is if we, if we take a look at Scripture, we find that the devil is likely a fallen angel who was very close to the presence of God who just wanted to be better than he was, perhaps even better than God. 
and he was thrown out of heaven, and he was able to deceive a third of the angels of heaven. Now, we call them angels. The word uh, angel comes from the Greek angelos. It just means messenger. These are God's messengers. People say all the time, oh, I, you know, I believe in aliens. Other people, oh, no, there's no aliens. Well, alien just means something that's not human and not earthly. Well, we would call those demons, right? They don't have to come from some other planet on the other side of the solar system or universe or whatever. Um, we're talking about uh, demonic beings. And by the word demon comes from a word daimon that means a demigod, half god, right? Uh, they, they want to be construed as gods. They want to be thought of as gods. That was the whole idea. That's why they got thrown out of heaven. But now they're roaming the earth, and they're the source of temptation, and uh, they're the source of torment for people that are outside the will of God. So um, Satan is not uh, omnipresent. That means he's not everywhere. If you're like, oh, man, the devil's really been hammering, the devil probably doesn't know your name doesn't care. If, if you and I are not making much of a difference in the kingdom of God, then I'm sure the devil doesn't know your name. But there's a host of these fallen angelic beings, these alien beings, if you will, um, extra-dimensional beings. Now this sounds like I'm, you know, getting into some sort of science fiction, but I'm trying to expand your mind beyond the cartoonish pictures that we have of the devil and demons. These are, in fact, extra-dimensional entities, extra-dimensional beings. They really do exist. They really can plug into people, and they really can move through people and do great harm. That's the reality. That's why you need to keep your eyes open, right? Because people can look like they're the friendliest people in the world, but you don't know what's inspiring them. You don't know what's motivating them, what's energizing them. And so, you know, I can choose to be doing spiritual war warfare by just praying all the time. You know, there's this on and off uh, for years and years, uh, my conservative friends are, are, you know, really hardcore on, you know, why did we take prayer out of schools? Nobody ever took prayer out of schools. Kids can pray right now. There's, there's nobody that can tell a kid they can't pray. You don't have to stand up and pray out loud to be praying. In fact, that's less effective prayer, honestly. Jesus said if you stand on a street corner and pray, you're trying to do it to get attention for yourself. All they did is take out a, uh, a school official leading in prayer, and I'm, I'm okay with that because I don't know where that person comes from as far as their faith is concerned. I, I don't want somebody that is leading some strange prayer for kids. They need to be in the church that they and or their parents choose to be in, um, not to be led down some other path um, by some, you know, sometimes well-meaning uh, adults. The point is, you can pray all the time. You can be looking at me and listening to me, and you can be praying right now. You can be praying for me right now. You can be praying for yourself right now. Every time you worry, you can pray. You can just open up your thoughts to God and be praying all the time. That's part of what it means to be on the alert, to be sober, to be aware, is to have this constant prayer that's going on in your mind all the time. We all talk to ourselves. Right? It's called subvocalization. Literally, if if we were to put a monitor on your vocal cords, even when you're silent, your vocal cords are subtly moving. Okay, when you think you're just thinking certain thoughts, many of those thoughts are subvocalized. You literally talk to yourself all the time. It's how you give yourself direction. It's how you work through things. What I tell people is the Scripture says, "Pray without ceasing." pray without stopping. Well, the way to do that is not to be walking around like a, like a prayer zombie all day long, oh, Lord and Lord and Lord, but you turn those, those thoughts that you have, you turn that subvocalization, that talking to yourself, you turn that into prayer. You just redirect it. Instead of directing it into yourself, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Why don't you open it up? Lord, what am I going to do? Help me. Talk to him. He wants to hear from you. And that's part of this process that we're talking about here, about being sober-minded, being watchful. 
and realizing that this is your adversary because it's God's adversary. And if he or his host, and a host, you see, that's a word we, that's a Bible word, but it's used differently. Um, there, there's a synonym. A host is, you know, somebody who leads you into the restaurant, right? And puts you at a table, you know, or the host or the hostess or someone that, you know, lets you into their home and, and cares about you and feeds you and all that other kind of stuff. But this old school word host means army. Okay, so in older translations of scripture, uh, God is called the Lord of hosts. What does that even mean? Well, there's a, there are several more contemporary translations that have just tried to identify it by saying God of armies, God of angel armies. So, in keeping with that, Satan and his hosts, those armies of daimon, extra-dimensional beings that God created, are on earth, and they're your enemies, but only if you are on the Lord's side. If you're not on the Lord's side, they don't care. They, they might mess with you, but they don't care. But as soon as you start following Jesus and you start paying attention to him, that's when you start encountering spiritual warfare. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to encounter a lot of drama and difficulty based on the consequences of your own choices. People enter in, they get into dark places in their lives because of their choices. I just got finished reading a book, um, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a Christian book. It was just a novel. In uh, fact, I, uh, it was called The Substitution Order. Yep, that was what it was called, The Substitution Order. And it was about a lawyer, a uh, real smart guy who had apparently been extremely successful. But at one point in the book, he gave uh, his downfall. He showed what caused his downfall. Because throughout the book, this is this incredibly successful lawyer that is basically working at the equivalent of a subway. And it's because he got into a lot of trouble, and he got into a lot of trouble as the result of using that stuff, right? Coke. And um, so he gives his, and of course, this is just a novel, but I got a sense that the author probably had a good understanding of what people in those sorts of situations go through. And he was just talking about, he didn't really drink that often, but he started drinking more. At first he just drank socially, and then he just drank more and more and more. And uh, then he encountered another very successful attorney, and that very successful attorney uh, led him to try cocaine. And he loved it. And it basically was something that he started doing all the time. And it led him down this terrible path. He was very faithful to his wife, but it led him down this terrible path where he ended up in a trailer with a woman that he didn't know that he had met through a, a drug dealer. And then he got busted. He got the, the police came and raided this trailer because um, of the... Uh, uh, the situation that the woman was in where she, uh, she was in this trailer and hooked up with these drug dealers. Anyway, it's a story, but it's, it's the type of story that's so realistic because it's the type of thing that happens all the time. And what I'm trying to show you is this is where somebody goes down a very, very dark road and ends up getting into a very, very demonic place in their life because they just followed something that felt good. They weren't trying to be evil. They're not trying to hurt people, do anything like that. They just follow this path. And this happens to a lot of us. We decide to do things that just feel good at the moment. Uh, other people lead us to do them, you know, lead us to try some of these things. And so, you know, we start walking down that path. And then, you know, we get ourselves in trouble and, and we have years of recovery, uh, at least if we choose to, to recover. Well, so what I'm getting at here is uh, the enemy works in all of these sorts of ways. He says he's your adversary. So if you love God and you follow Jesus, then his enemy becomes your enemy. The scripture says in uh, Revelation chapter 12, for the devil has come down to you full of wrath because he knows that his time is short. Listen to the whole text there. Uh, this is the passage in Revelation 12 is the passage that tells us uh, that, that 
Satan fell from heaven and took, swept away a third of the angels of heaven. And this is uh, the, the kind of the conclusion of that, uh, that uh, story. And they, have, they conquered him, that is, uh, God's people, conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So um, you must overcome him. But as I've indicated in this room many times before, you are promised overwhelming victory. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. Now, according to that scripture that we just looked at from Revelation, we conquer him, we overcome him through the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? Well, that means you're genuinely saved. You're under the forgiving grace of God because of Christ's sacrifice on that cross. You can only have victory through Christ's shed blood on the cross because without that, we're sinners and we're separated from God. That means we're not naturally under his protection. You need to get that, by the way. People all the time are like, you know, if God is good, if God's such a good God, then why all this evil? This is a fallen world. God will become actively involved in your life when you invite him. But this is a world that is separated from God, and human beings are naturally separated from God. Why? Because we all sin, and the wages of sin is death, and death is separation from life and the author of life. So I need to get myself under the protection of God, and the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to come to Christ, and I'm going to confess that he's Lord. I'm going to uh, put faith in the one who died on the cross in my place because I sin. The soul that sins, it will surely die. The wages of sin is death. I owe a sin debt of death. Christ paid that debt. Therefore, when I get under that blood, then I receive that payment or uh, my sin debt is paid off, and that puts me in a position of grace with God. So that's why uh, we defeat the enemy through the blood of the Lamb, because otherwise we're on our, on our own. Um, we're out there by ourselves. We're powerless against the devil. In fact, he will deceive you and have you working for him unwittingly, sometimes willingly. And he uses your wicked desires to snare you like an animal. Listen to what it says in James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. For many of whom I have often told you, this is Philippians 3, 18 and 19, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We're just animals without the Lord. We're just pulled here and there by all these addictions all these desires, all these affections that we have. And that's how the devil manipulates people. Your God is your belly. That means your appetite rules you, which means the devil can control you through your appetites, through your addiction. Addiction becomes an appetite, right? No child likes alcohol. The first time any kid drinks alcohol, they don't like it. Right Now, there are plenty of drinks out there that have so much sugar in them that they mask the alcohol. The point behind that is that then they get the feeling of the alcohol and that, you know, that feeling or that affiliation of other people that are drinking, and now they're into doing that. Nobody, when they first smoke, likes that. Your, your lungs are, are for air. They're not for the smoke from a leaf or a weed, Okay but we end up liking the feeling from that. And so as the result, I'm not trying to jump on one thing over another. If you smoke, if you drink, whatever, that's not my point. My point is to show that something that is not natural, it's not natural. In fact, 
you know, I, I mean, I go over to Intrinsic on a regular basis and, and, you know, have craft beer. I went over there earlier today and had their little uh, flight, these little four-ounce beers and tried their different ones, whatever. But alcohol is a natural poison to your body. Uh, your body has to, has to kick it into high gear to get rid of that poison. That's why when people drink too much, what do they do? They throw up. That's your body trying to get rid of a poison, all right? And all, all sorts of other things can happen. So this is what I'm trying to say is this is when um, something becomes an addiction, and then that addiction becomes an appetite. Now you need it. It's not just, hey, I'm going to go over to Intrinsic and I'm going to have a beer. It's, no, I got to have it. Get up in the morning, got to have it, right? Got to stay, uh, you know, lit all day long, whatever. Got to have it. And then that starts to rule me and that starts to run me and that starts to ruin me is what happens. So we got to resist the devil. And sometimes that means we got to resist our own appetites. We're not going to do it alone. The Lord's going to help us, but we got to be willing to do it. Then the word of your testimony, um, you have to have a testimony. You have to have a God story. You, you have to have a story that says that you actually belong to the Lord. So I ask people all the time, I, I shared this on Sunday morning, I ask people the same question because it's the question Jesus asked his disciples. Who is Jesus to you? I mean, your answer to that question is all important because that's what determines eternity for you. Who is Jesus to you? Jesus said, who do people say that I am? More importantly, he said to the same disciples, who do you say I am? And that's all I'm saying. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, you have a story with God. Now, that story may be, I don't know God. I don't have anything to do with God. I don't hang out with God. I don't really go to church. Uh, I don't do that kind of stuff. But it's still a story, right? Or your story may be, you know what? I was on the cradle roll. I was raised in church, went to Sunday school, was in youth group, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. You have a story that's related to church. But more importantly, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you have a story. You have a testimony, in other words. How did you come to know him? All right, so Aristotle was the first one, at least that we have in writing, that talked about what a story was like. And basically, it's real simple. A story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has an act one, an act two, and an act three. You have a story. Your life is a story. You have a beginning. You have a middle. You will have an end. If you have a testimony, it's a story. You began with Christ at some point in time. Even if you were raised in church, you began at some point in time. If you have a relationship with him, you began to put your focus and attention on him and put your faith in him. So, Jacob, you were saying that, was it two Sundays ago or was it last Sunday was your, your spiritual birthday? Isn't that what you said? Was it last Sunday? Two Sundays ago, right? So, Jacob is tracking that, that date. He, he remembers when he first gave his life to Christ. I shared a little bit of my story on Sunday. Now, you may or may not remember the day. But you have, if, if you have a relationship with Christ, then it began somewhere. All right, listen, anybody you know, that relationship began somewhere. Even your mama, that relationship began somewhere. You were born, boom, it began, okay? But everybody that you know, that relationship began at some point in time. And then there's a progression beyond that. So I come to know Jesus. I come to faith in Jesus. I put my faith in him. I'm baptized, right? That's what he commands me to do. Believer's baptism, that's the public confession of faith that Jesus commanded. Baptism doesn't wash away sins. We've already seen that in, in, in 1 Peter. It's a confession, right? It's a confession to God. It shows that I identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's why you need to be baptized after you put your faith in Jesus, not before. That's why the baptism of babies is really not, uh, it's not believer's baptism. Let's just put it that way, okay? Um, it's, a, it's a nice ceremony. It's a way of showing that parents care about their children very much and want them raised right. 
But you have to make up your own mind. You have to decide to be baptized. And that has to come after you have faith in Jesus. That's the public confession of faith. He says that by the word of your testimony, that's how you defeat the enemy. Well, you have to, you really have to have a testimony. That's the, that's the point, right? Um, and then they love not their lives unto the death, all right? So you can't love your earthly or natural life or the enemy can hold that over you. That's, now, this whole time I'm quoting from Revelation 12, 11, even though I still have this up here, I'm trying to show you how you resist him. You resist him through the blood of the lamb, the word of your testimony, and because you love not your life unto the death. That's how you resist him. If you love your life, well, here's what the scripture says. Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but are from the world. And the world and its lusts are passing away. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. Amen? You do the will of God, you'll live forever. You chase these, these lusts in the world, and you're going to burn out with them. Nothing stays, all right? So this guy that was given this testimony in this novel that I read uh, about cocaine addiction talked about how that initial burst of energy and whatever he felt as a result of taking cocaine, um, he had to have more and more and more cocaine to achieve that same level of high. That's the way your body is constructed, by the way. It's called homeostasis. This is why no diet continues to work. Diets work for a while, and then they don't. Why? Well, the easiest way to say it is your body gets used to it. That's homeostasis, okay? So when, you know, the first time, if you've ever uh, drank alcohol, the first time you drank alcohol, uh, you know, it affected you probably more significantly. But there's an actual chemical process, a shift that happens in your body when you drink on a regular basis that permits your body to process alcohol and not affect your brain quite as much as it did previously, right? Now, there's a whole lot of other things that are going on here, but what I'm trying to say is your body wants to stay where it's at. It doesn't want you to keep losing weight, right? It doesn't want you to continue to bombard it with these chemicals. It's going to find a way to deal with it. That's homeostasis. So as a result, no high continues to feel the same, right? Um, your body is going to get you, and, and all of these highs, here's another word for you, are insatiable. That means that you can never, never fulfill them, right? It doesn't matter what it is, they're insatiable. So you might feel really good from this high or that high, but then you know, you start losing that high and you don't feel so good, then it requires more, more and more and more. That's what insatiable means. It requires more and more and more and more to obtain that or attain that. Um, that's why I can't love the world and I can't love my earthly life because the devil holds that over me. So I'm telling you, that's the way you defeat the enemy here, all right? So let's move on. I spent a lot of time on that, but to me, that's the, the central point here, right? Um, we need to resist him firm in our faith. So the, whole, the motivation behind all this is my faith in Christ. And then I know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by others, my brotherhood, that means other, other believers in Christ, throughout the world. Um, I'm not alone. The scripture says, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he said, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's back up. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. That doesn't mean male gender. That's the old school way of saying human beings. You may think, no, my temptation is unique to me. It's not. You'll find there are other people that are dealing with the same temptation, the same trials. You're not alone. So that can be a source of comfort. You don't feel like you're so alone or so weird or whatever you're tempted to think, 
okay? But that's what this scripture says here. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by those uh, other believers throughout the world. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever. Okay? So, notice. Let's back up. Um, in verse 9, we were told, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that at the same time as suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, I want you to notice that. It's not going to go on forever. Hey, COVID, is, it's not going to go on forever. It's really not. I mean, you've got naysayers out there. You've got negative people out there. I saw some, some YouTube video that somebody had put out there, some commentator put out there. New York will never be the same. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's never going to be the same. This is the new normal. We're going to wear masks forever. Please. This too will pass. It's going to be okay. It'll be okay. Right? I promise it's going to be okay. That's what this says. After a little while. After you've suffered a little while, then the God of all grace. Notice this is about grace. Grace is... Uh, there's an acronym that has been used to help us understand grace. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. So this is all about what God gives. This is all about what God provides, grace. So what I find then is after a little while, after just a bit of suffering, and it may be longer than I want to deal with. Now I'll, I'll give you guys a, uh, you know, a little bit of testimonial. On Sunday, um, you know, I got done Sunday, great day, Sunday, whatever. But Sunday evening, I got a headache that would not go away. I, all my life, I've dealt with headaches. But I mean, this thing would not go away. I took two Aleve. I took a Tylenol. And it would not go away. It would not stop. And it was bad. I couldn't get to sleep. Nothing I did helped. And I'm just crying out to the Lord with this thing. That's, you know, that's physical suffering. And you, you know, have perhaps endured worse than that. I'm just giving you a recent example. But it did go away. It was a relatively short period of suffering. At the time, it didn't feel like it was, uh, you know, you, when you're in that much pain, it doesn't matter that it's going to last a short period of time. All you, you're just caught in the moment. You're just like, no, this feels bad now, right now. But we can comfort ourselves that God is a God of grace. And after a little while, then this God of grace who called you beyond this world into his eternal glory, yeah, he's going to end it. Now, that goes for physical suffering like the headache that I just mentioned but it also goes for uh, life situations that you may be going through right now. They don't, they don't have to be forever, okay? And in the end, this world is not forever, okay? He says that Christ himself, and the, these are the words that are used in the ESV, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I memorized this in... Um, from the New American Standard Bible, and it says, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Well, I want to look at those words and see what those promises are, and that's how we're going to conclude. I've got five more minutes, so hang in here with me. Um, let's look at what this word, this first one. So Christ himself is going to restore or perfect you if you are in Christ. That's the Greek word, uh, katarizo, and it means to make someone completely adequate or sufficient for something. You have enough. You can get through this. That's what he's going to provide you. To make adequate, to furnish completely, to cause, to be fully qualified. You're qualified for the job, right? And it is used in 2 Timothy 3.17 about Timothy, uh, where he is told um, to 
equip himself so that he may be adequate for every good deed. And then in Luke 6.40, it's used when it says, when Jesus says, everyone who is fully qualified will be like his teacher, right? So God uses people like me to equip you. So he uses tools, in other words, but he's promised to equip you. He's promised to give you what you need to handle it, to get through it, right? Then the next word is to confirm. This is the Greek word sterizo. Um, To fix firmly in place is what it means, to set up, to establish, to support. That's you. God wants to fix you in place. He wants you to stop wobbling all over the place and waffling all over the place and being blown here and there by every wind of fortune and wind of doctrine. He wants you to be established. He wants you to be firm. Well, he promises that he's going to do that. Christ exhorted Peter, when once you have recovered, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus predicted that Peter was going to deny him. Peter didn't believe it. Peter said, no, 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 I'll die for you. And Jesus said, are you going to die for me? Really? Before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. Peter didn't realize that he was unstable. You may not realize that either. Maybe you think that you've got it all going on and you're stable and you're strong and everything's fine. But the reality is in Christ, we are provided with that stability, that confirmation, all right? And then... um, Strengthen. This is the word uh, stenosai, and this is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. And it means to cause someone to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief. So when I combine this with that previous word, it reminds me of, of walking out into the ocean, all right? You ever been to the ocean, right? You ever walked out while the, the waves are, are crashing, Right? I mean, you got to kind of like strengthen your legs, you know, where they just knock you over. Man, some of these, it just depends on where you're at, right? But, I mean, you walk out there and you get your legs strong and you get stable and that wave comes and it pushes on you. So this is the kind of strength that provides you with that stability that we're looking for. And the final word is establish you. This is the word themeliosi, uh, themeliosi. It refers to a foundation. It's used in Matthew 7, 25, when Jesus said, build your house upon the rock, not on the sand. Build your house on the sand, then when the the winds and the waves rise, it's gonna just blow your house away, right? The old three pigs story that, you know, kids are told. I'm gonna huff and puff and blow your house down. Your house is built of straw, then it's going to blow away. The house that's built of stone is not going to blow away. Jesus said the house that is firmly planted on the right foundation, and that foundation is his teaching, it will be secure and it will last. Um, As a conclusion from uh, a a word study of, of these words, it's called Vincent's word study. He says, Bengal thus sums up the whole. Shall perfect that no defect remain in you, shall establish that nothing may shake you, shall strengthen that you may overcome every adverse force. A saying worthy of Peter, he is strengthening his brethren. And I hope that this teaching has strengthened you tonight, that you know that you need to resist the devil, you need to resist temptation, but you don't do that alone. You have been given the ability, if you are in Christ, you have been given that ability to resist. He will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Right on the money at 8 o'clock, let me say a quick word of prayer to close us. Father, thank you so much for this group of people that are here this evening, for those that are watching online. I pray, Father, that we will realize that we do need to resist the devil. We need to recognize, as James said, that if we resist him, he will flee. We thank you that you're on our side, Lord. I pray that each and every person in the hearing of my voice Uh, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and puts their full faith in him. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. God bless you. Thank you so much.